Turn, if you would, to the Word of God this morning, to the letter to the Hebrews, letter to the Hebrews chapter 1, and I want to read the verses 1 through 4. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who be in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Thus far, the reading of God's word. There was no doubt growing up in my house which chair belonged to my father. In the dining room, it was the chair with the arms. And whenever he was home, that was where he sat. In the sitting room, it was a lazy boy chair. That was his domain. And if you heard him coming to the sitting room, you immediately kicked the chair down and stood up because that was his chair. And only he had a right to sit in it. I suppose that's okay. After all, he paid for them all so he could do with them what he wanted. But it was because of that, I think, that I have hesitated throughout my life to plant my flag on any particular chair in our house. And so when visitors come over and ask me which chair is mine so that they know where to sit or not to sit, I say they're all mine. You can sit wherever you want. That's my invitation to them. And that is often how we sit. We sit because of invitation. It's not always the reason why we sit in a particular spot. For instance, you sit on an airplane because you've purchased that seat, at least for a little while. That's how airlines make their money. Or if you're a bus driver, you sit because they pay you to sit there. That's uh, your privilege because uh, you've been hired by them for a specific task. And then again, as I said, sometimes you sit somewhere simply because you're invited to do so. Well, this morning we have the wonderful privilege of sitting at the Lord's table. And the question I want to ask with you this morning is, why can we sit at the Lord's table? Knowing who we are and knowing who God is, how is it possible that we can sit and have fellowship with the triune majesty? And the answer I want to show you from the Word of God this morning is both simple and deeply profound. The reason that we can sit at the Lord's table on earth is because our Lord Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of God in heaven. Because he sits above, we may sit below. And I want to point that out to you. The first thing I want to point out to you this morning is that we have no right to sit because of anything in ourselves. You can see that by the reference in verse 3 to our sins. It is our sins that have disfellowshipped us from God. It wasn't, of course, all that way. When we were first created and living in the Garden of Eden, we had fellowship with the triune God. 
There was nothing separating us, nothing impinging on our relationship. There was nothing that had come between us. The, the holy God could eagerly have fellowship without any hindrance whatsoever with a holy creatures, with Adam and Eve. But then sin came into the world and all of its ugliness and all of its devastating, destructive power. And it separated us from God. We become disfellowship from him. We no longer have a seat at the table with the Lord. In fact, the end result of Adam's sin, as so graphically portrayed in the early chapters of the Bible, is that Adam and Eve were driven from the garden and driven from the presence of God. We could no longer sit at the table with the Lord. We had fallen from table grace. And so we can't sit at the table this morning because we have a right to. Whatever right we might have had, we have forfeited in our sin in Adam and in our actual sins that we commit from day to day. Nor can we sit at the Lord's table because we've purchased that right. What could we purchase with only debts? If we had credits, we might be able to purchase a right to the seat at the Lord's table. But we have no credits. We have only debts, and we daily increase our debt because of our sin. Remember how how our Lord Jesus said to us that you should pray like this, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So we have nothing to purchase a seat at the Lord's table with. And even if we did have credits, how would that be impressive to the one who is the heir of all things. What could we give to the God who has all things as his possession? So we cannot sit uh, because we have a right to the Lord's table. We cannot sit because we've purchased a place at the Lord's table. So then why can we sit? And the answer again is that we can sit because our Lord Jesus sits. We could sit below on earth, because our Lord Jesus sits above in heaven. And that's the burden of verses 3 and 4 of our text this morning. So who is it that sits? Well, the Lord Jesus is introduced in a variety of ways. The writer to the Hebrews tells us five things about the Lord Jesus, the one who is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. First of all, he is the final word of God. In the past, in various times, and in various ways, God spoke to us through the prophets. But now, with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the prophet of God par excellence, the final word of the Lord to his people, the one in whom all previous communications find their fullness, now in these last days, God has spoken to us in the Son. Jesus Christ. So he is the final word of God. Secondly, he is the one who has been appointed heir of all things. You remember how the Apostle Paul speaks about this in Philippians 2, that our Lord Jesus, who was a very nature, God did not think equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he came down to earth and he became a man. And as a man, he became our servant and he served us to the point of giving himself to the death of the cross. And therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that as the reward for Christ's 
faithful service to his father. He became the heir of all things. All things have been given to our Lord Jesus. The nations are his by inheritance because he has been faithful in his work in response to his father's will. So he's the final word. He's the heir of all things. And then notice at the end of verse 2, he's the creator of all things. Through Christ, God made the worlds. So that everything that we see was spoken into existence by God. The word made all things without him. Nothing was made that has been made. And if you just ponder this, in light of what the apostle is going to, or the writer is going to say about the work of Jesus Christ. You can think of it this way, that the wood of the cross on which the Lord of glory would be crucified was taken from a tree that was created by the Lord of glory himself. He is the one through whom the universe has been made. And then the writer goes on to speak about The being of Christ. Who is this Christ? Who is the creator, the final word, the heir? Well, he is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. And so what the writer here is highlighting as he as he wishes to impress upon these Christians who are tempted to go back to the old way of worship and the Judaism of their day. He's saying that Christ is vastly superior to the angels, to Moses, even a Melchizedek, and the Aaronic priesthood. Who is this Christ whom we worship? He is none other than very God of very God. Paul says it like this, that he is the image of the invisible God. And that in our Lord Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form, so that the one who is the final word, the one who's been appointed the heir, the one through whom all the worlds have been made, he is not merely a man. He is the God-man, the great one. He is God himself, equal in majesty and glory with the Father and the Spirit. He is God in the flesh. Then there's one other thing that the writer says about the Lord Jesus. He's the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. So that this world continues because Christ is the one who upholds all things. The sun rises because Christ calls it to rise in this morning, this morning. And it will set this evening at his command. And again, it's a sheer wonder of of Christ as the upholder, the creator, but also as the upholder of all things that is seen so so marvelously within the connection to his crucifixion. So that the only reasons the Jews and the Romans could put the Lord Jesus to death is because it was Christ himself who was upholding them and enabling them to carry out the divine purposes of God. So it is Christ, the God-man, who sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's the one who is exalted above all, 
above the angels, above Moses, above the Aaronic priesthood, above Melchizedek even. It is Christ the God-man who sat down. Now what does it uh, mean that he sat down? Why does he sit down? Or, Or perhaps it's better to say it in this way. What did he do before he sat down? And you can see this uh, in verse 3. When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So before the Lord Jesus sat down, the writer says he has purged our sins. Now our sins, of course, are a great and heinous thing. But our sins stain us. And it's not a surface stain that our sins stain us with. There's no way that you can take a a little container of Tide to Go and and, uh, rub the stain out. That's for stains that that have only been uh, put upon the fabric. They haven't had time to to set in yet. But, But the stain of sin has been with us from the beginning, from the day that Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, for that long, sin has been with us, and it stains us. It gets into us, uh, in and in. It's not something that you can simply wipe away. It's not something that you can even rub off. The sin, uh, the stain of sin is so indelibly imprinted within us that there's nothing at all that we can do to remove it from us. I think the the clearest illustration of that that you can find, well, at least you used to be able to find, was when you looked at a mechanic's hands. Now mechanics generally wear latex gloves, so their hands stay uh, pristine, as clean and soft as ministers' hands do. But before the latex gloves, uh, you could tell a man was a mechanic because his hands were black. And there would be uh, grit and oil in the in the crevices of his hands. If there was a cut in his hand, you could be sure that even the cut would be would be black because of all the oil and grease that he was working with. It would be black under his nails, black behind the cuticles of his fingers, and there was no way that he could get that out. He could use the best of soaps, uh, but the the stain of the oil and the grease was there indelibly. In his hand. And that's the way. That's the way that sin is in humanity. It is so in us. It's inseparable from us. And you can't get rid of it in any way by yourself. It is so deeply embedded within us that it takes the God man to purge our sins. And the writer here says that's Exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ did. By himself, he has purged our sins. Now, how has he done that? How Well, he's taken our sins. He's lifted them out of our lives. And he's taken them as if they were his own. He has taken full responsibility for all of our infelicities. For all of our disobedience and rebellion. For all of the ugliness of our sins, their filth and uh, their ungodliness, our Lord Jesus has taken them upon himself. He has been stained himself by our sins while remaining himself pure and sinless and holy. He has been treated as if he were the greatest sinner 
this world has ever known. And as the greatest sinner this world has known because he has taken upon himself our sins, he has gone to the cross. And because he goes to the cross as someone considered guilty, then he bears upon himself the responsibility that our sins deserve. And the full fury of a holy God against sin is cascading over him. He takes the judgment that sins deserve. He takes the devastation, uh, the brokenness, the ruin that sin deserves. That was all experienced by the Lord Jesus. Our sins deserve us, uh, deserve to be, drive us from the presence of God. And that was the experience of our Lord on the cross when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our Lord Jesus has taken the stain of sin as if they were his own stains and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Just think of uh, what the writer to the Hebrews says later on in, in chapter 9, verse 14. He says there that, that Christ, uh, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without spot to God. And because of that, the blood of Christ cleanses our conscience from dead works. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. So our Lord Jesus shed his blood. And that blood has purged our sins. It has washed them away so that we are as holy and as pure as the Son of God himself is. I uh, am fond of using fountain pens to write with. And I never write with anything except a fountain pen. And occasionally, my fountain pen leaks. And uh, so there's a blot on my pocket. And I take my shirt and I give it to my wife. I say, Lucy, could you please do something with this? Could you purge this day? And sometimes she's successful. She's so skillful at it. She's well-practiced now as well. But sometimes she's so successful that that I look at the shirt and uh, the stain is completely gone. You wouldn't even know it was there. It, the shirt is as good as new. It's not always that way. Sometimes there's there's residue of the ink still remaining. But usually she purges the stain completely. And uh, sometimes when you when you work on a, on a shirt to get out the stain, the, the fabric is ruined. But when our Lord Jesus purges us from our sins. He leaves us completely intact. He restores us to our former glory so that there's no blemish. There's no ruined fabric at all. We are as good as we were when we were created because Christ has, by his death, by himself, purged our sins and made us as holy and righteous and as sinless as he himself is. That's what he did before he sat down. And having done that, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What does it mean that he sat down? I think the first thing to highlight for us is that his work was complete. That there was no need for any other sacrifices. Because his sacrifice had done a thorough job. There was no residue left. There was no leftovers. He had purged our sins fully. 
and there needed to be no other sacrifices. Children, you might remember the layout of the Old Testament tabernacle. There, there was altar uh, in the inner court or outer court, and then there was this big pool. It wasn't really a pool. It wasn't for the priests to swim in, but it was for the priests to wash their hands in. And then you would go into this room that was called the, the holy place. And in the room, there'd be a little golden altar of incense. And, and then there would be this lampstand with seven lamps on it. And on your left, I think, there was a table. And on the table, there would be seven uh, or twelve loaves of bread that were placed out there every day. And if you were uh, privileged, and you never were, only the high priest was, and then you went beyond the curtain into the most holy place, you would see there the, the that box, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. But if you looked around the tabernacle, there was one piece of furniture that you would never find. You would see a table, and you would think if there's a table, there must be a chair. But there was no chair in the Old Testament tabernacle. And that was by design. It wasn't an oversight. It was by design. And the reason there was no chair is because the priests, when they offered the sacrifices, could never sit down and kick back and think, wow, finally I've offered the sacrifice that would remove the sins of God's people. No, not all the blood of bulls and goats on Jewish altar slain could remove the stain of the sin of God's people. And so the sacrifices needed to be made day after day, repeatedly. The priests could never sit down. This is... Uh, what uh, the writer says in, in Hebrews 10, just listen to this. And every priest stands, ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. But this man, speaking of our Lord Jesus, the God-man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. That's why Christ sat down, because the sacrifice was complete. Nothing more needed to be done. He sat down because he was satisfied with his work. He sat down because the Father was satisfied with his work. The Father had sent him on a mission to go and make the sacrifice for sins. And he came back having completed his work, and the Father surveyed the work that his son had done and said, well done, good and faithful son. I may now welcome you to sit at the highest place of honor that this world knows. You may sit at my right hand because I'm completely satisfied that you did what I've asked you to do. Thomas Goodwin, one of my friends who's been dead for 400 years, uh, said to uh, said that if Christ had come into heaven without completing the work to the satisfaction of the Father, the Father would certainly have sent him back down to finish the work. But he was satisfied so that he invited his son to sit at his right hand in glory. You young boys, I'm sure, have had this experience, or you older men who had this experience when you were a young boy. Your your father sent you outside to to cut the grass and to take care of the lawn, and and uh, you thought you were finished, and you came inside, and uh, you said, "I'm done, Dad." And he says, "Well, let me just check." And and you said, 
just a minute, please. Uh, let me go outside and make sure that I am actually done. And so you went outside and you put the lawnmower away and you trimmed some long blades of grass that had escaped your notice earlier. And then you come in again and you say, Dad, I'm done. And uh, he says, let me go check. And so you go outside with your father and he surveys your work. Uh, there's no strip of grass that has been missing. Uh, there's no lawnmower uh, that's still in the yard. It has been put away. And uh, even more remarkably, the bag on the back of the lawnmower has been emptied and uh, put away. And uh, everything has been trimmed beautifully. And your father says, son, well done. You did a great job. Uh, you may now come and sit down with me. And that's what the father says to the son. Your sacrifice has thoroughly purged the sins of my people. I see them no more. They're all gone. The work has been done beautifully. It's wonderfully done. You're a great son. And I honor you and exalt you and give you that name that is above every name. You've done such a superb job. And thus, Father is satisfied with the work of the Son. And that's why he sat down. It was a sitting down of completion and a sitting down of satisfaction. And uh, you can be satisfied, too, with all that Christ has done to cleanse you from your sins and to reconcile you to God. There's nothing that you need to do. Uh, you you know the temptation is is to do something. It's it's like uh, when we have visitors uh, for dinner and uh, they say, "Is there anything I can help you with?" and and you say, "No, no, just just sit down." Uh, can, can I do the dishes? Uh, no, no, just sit down. Can I clear the table for you? No, you don't need to do that at all. Just sit down and enjoy uh, what we have prepared for you. And uh, and this is what the Lord is saying to you. I, I don't want you to do anything. I don't want you to contribute anything. I want you just to receive. Just sit down with passivity and rest upon what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. If if you try to help him, you'll just ruin it. If you try to do it yourself, you'll be unsuccessful. Because the only way your sins can be purged is at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I remember reading some years ago that uh, uh, Pope Francis was... Uh, inviting and encouraging people to go to this uh, World Family Day. I believe it was in Dublin, in, in Ireland. And, and he said that if you attend, this would be an indulgence. Uh, that is, it, it would contribute to uh, your salvation. It, it would lessen your days in purgatory. Well, the only purgatory there is in all the universe is at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only place that sins are purged away, are removed, because it is only the blood of the God-man that can do so. And so you need to be satisfied in what Christ has done. And you say, well, well, it's hard because, because my sins are, are so many. Uh, yes, that's true. They're even more than you realize. They're more than the hairs of your head and more than you can count. Uh, but uh, Christ uh, has made an infinite sacrifice. That's 
That's why the writer wants to highlight that, that our Lord Jesus is the brightness of the glory. He is the express image of his person. That it's not just a mere man who went to the cross. It was the God-man. The infinite one has become a man. And in his death, he has made an infinite sacrifice. So that it doesn't matter how many your sins are. If you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, he will by himself purge your sins. But you say, it's not only that my sins are so many. It's that I've been sinning for so long. I've been sinning for 30, for 40, 60, 70 years. Indeed, you probably have. You've been sinning as long as you've been alive. But listen to this. Your plan, your salvation has been planned long before you started finishing. From before the foundation of the world, uh, Christ was given as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world uh, so that uh, God's grace has been longer than your sin. And you say, but it's not just that. It's that my sin is deliberate. I scheme sometimes to sin. I plan. I'm deliberate about it. I make it, make an effort. I, I arrange things. I, I lie to, to arrange things so that I can, can give into my sins and my lusts. So yes, you do. You plan to sin, but from eternity, God has planned to redeem you and to purge that sin away. There's nothing that you need to do except sit. You come to the Lord's table this morning. You don't come to run or to parade your own goodness, or or, or to uh, to demonstrate your own faithfulness. You don't come because you're better now than you were the last time you celebrated the Lord's Supper. You come as a sinner, and you come to sit, to rest, to be at peace, to receive, to be satisfied in all that God has done for you in our Lord Jesus Christ. The Westminster Shorter Catechism has a wonderful description of faith. It says that faith is to rest and uh, to receive and rest upon Christ as he is offered in the gospel. It's not a matter of what we do, of the contributions that we make, of the efforts that we exert, of the promises to do better. That's not what qualifies you to sit. You can sit at the Lord's table this morning. Because our Lord Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. And if you are a Christian believer, if you have come to know Jesus Christ, well, the way you've come to know Christ as the one who is only the only one able to purge away your sins, that's how you've come to Christ. And that's how you come to the table. You come resting upon the work of Christ. You come and just sit, and you can, because he himself sits. Isn't that wonderful good news that our Lord Jesus has by himself purged our sins, and then he sat down so that we, having had our sins purged, may sit down too. Amen.